0: Uh, This message really began about five weeks ago when our executive pastor, Janice Rowling, came to me. And um, I wasn't surprised when she made this request because I'd been hearing from Janice for some time that God has been impressing on her heart and not hers only. Uh, Certainly in leadership, we've been getting this message for some time. Um, As overseers, we took some time this last year to work through a book together by John Dawson called uh, Taking Your Cities for God. Excellent book. I'd strongly recommend it to uh, anyone excited about what God can do with us in this body, in this part of the city. And in, in this book, uh, a strong word came out from John in terms of strategy for taking our cities for God that step number one has to be worship. And he used a number of biblical analogies. Uh, Joshua, for example, coming into the Promised Land, the first thing he did was stop, bow his knee, and worship God. And then the process of taking that territory for God began. Janice herself, uh, who has been gifted as as one of our leaders in this body with the gift of of prophetic word, uh, had had a strong image come to her not long ago, in which um, she said, much like a light switch she was, had this strong impression that the next step, the thing that would flip the switch for the power of God to begin to take us to the next level, the next step, the next moment in what God has for this body, is going to be a, a light switch of worship. Much like a light switch, it, it's not that the light switch produces the energy. The energy is there. The Spirit of God is here. It's as His people remove the blockages, as the light switch uh, connects the, the circuit, it allows the energy to surge, and that worship would play a huge role in that next step for us as a body stepping into what God has called us to do. So I wasn't at all surprised when Janice made this request of would I put together a teaching on worship for our staff and and the pastors and such. What I was a, perhaps a bit surprised about was my reaction to it. Uh, my first words out of my mouth were "great idea," and and it was a great idea. Uh, I saw it coming, it made sense. I know in my own life, personally, that uh, moments of worship have been some of the most intimate moments I've I've had with the Lord. That wasn't the surprising. What was surprising was my my second reaction. The next words out of my mouth were, and I'm sure Greg or Peggy or Steve Enderline will do a really good job at it. I'm not your guy. Now that's perhaps a little out of character for me. I feel my calling in life is to share and teach things about God. And so, when given an opportunity, I usually don't balk at it. But without even thinking about it, that was my reaction to her. Four or five days later, I stand before the pastor's giving a teaching, which goes to show who is and is not the executive pastor in this church. Praise God for Janice. Um, that hesitation, that reluctance, gave me a piece to work through over the next four or five days of putting together what I did share and what largely I'm going to share this morning. Because what that reluctance, that hesitation did was it it, it brought me face to face with something I've known about for a long time. I've even admitted it to myself on occasion, but I've never talked about it. It's not something spiritual to talk about, I don't think. It's, It's an admittance, a confession of sorts, if you will, not a confession of sin really, but a confession of reality, of what is. And um, I'm I'm told that in in preaching classes in some seminaries, uh, they instruct young pastors not to get too personal in the pulpit. Don't air your dirty laundry. Stay focused on the Word. You'll do okay. I hope you're okay if I break a rule. Is that right? Good. I hope we are okay with that since our senior pastor attempts to break three or four every sermon he he preaches here at this church. Starting with, thou shalt not wear tennis shoes in the pulpit. Praise God for Greg. Some rules need to be broken. And so I'd like to start with a confession, an admittance of what I faced that four or five days as I was, was, was really, it's like God said to me, don't pick up a book on worship. Pick up the book on worship and take your exhaustive concordance and just look at every conceivable verse there is about worship. Start fresh. See what I have to say about worship with new eyes. And so that was what I attempted to do. With the entire time, this reluctance piece staring me in the face. Confession is for most of my Christian life, which has been about 20 years plus now, I've struggled with worship. Worship has not come easy to me. When I say that, I say that not just about my own self, I say that because I know I'm not alone. I say that because I know of good friends, I know of family members who in in times of honesty have said, some of the most difficult times for me are times when I come into a worship service and I see everyone with hands raised, voices singing, assuming what they must be feeling and knowing I don't feel any of it. And you know, I've been there. I've struggled with worship. I've been there when, when, when the music starts, even Norm coming on stage or Greg or one of our worship leaders encouraging us, ushering us in, and my heart's cold. And the absence of God's presence is palpable. And the thoughts, the distracting thoughts that come so easily. And let's be honest, maybe the root of it all. I get right down to it just not really feeling as if I am someone who is at that moment, in that place, in that time, worthy to worship. I don't feel all that lovable. I don't feel as if. Perhaps I'm the one that belongs in God's presence at that moment to give Him the honor that is due. So for all these things, the struggle of worship became the fuel for what I I, I had to share with the pastors. And it became the first word of, I struggle with it. Know that. But out of that struggle, out of that four or five days of, of asking God what to say about this, what to do with this topic that I'm not worthy even to speak about, The second thing that happened out of that reluctance, that hesitation, was a new realization. It was a realization that my vision of worship had been pretty limited up to this point. And God used not only my struggle, but also those opportunities I've had to see where worship really transforms me. I've had those moments too. And I've I've seen, Greg and I have an opportunity every spring to teach a course at Bethel College called God, Evil, and Spiritual Warfare. And inevitably... Whenever we teach that course, we have several students uh, who ask us to pray with them for deliverance situations. And I've been there in the room when, when praying over a deliverance situation and nothing's happening and we simply stop and praise God and breakthrough happens. So I've seen the power of worship. I've seen the struggle of worship. And as I share today, I hope that wherever you're at on the worship spectrum, and perhaps isn't it true for all of us that at some point we're all across that spectrum, that something of encouragement comes forth today for you. Some of these things are simply reminders, things we all probably know if we've been a Christian for long. Others, frankly for me, this got framed in very new ways over this last month. And if I can summarize it, which I will summarize it today, I would say that the three things that hit me strongest as I worked through the themes of Scripture about worship was this. That worship is fundamentally spirit centered, truth empowered, and warfare strategy. Let's pray. Father, we're here today. We've come here today to worship you. And Lord, we ask that every song sung, Lord, every note lifted up to you every word of this message every heart of each person here Lord would be bound and determined if nothing else today to be a worship center for you Lord this building is not the worship center we are the worship center we simply come together here and we ask you Father to empower and receive and be blessed Lord by our worship today In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two of Jesus' teachings on worship encapsulated for me, I think, these three themes very succinctly. In John chapter 4, verse 24, we read these words. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. A little context to this passage, you may be familiar with the story: Jesus traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. common pilgrimage for Galilean Jews to go down to the temple to worship. But unfortunately, what you had to do if you were a Galilean Jew going to worship in Judea, is you had to go through Samaria. Not cool. Not a good place to go. This was the place of well, let's be honest, Jews thought of the Samaritans as half-breed dogs as people not worthy to be called people of God because they had intermarried with the pagan population during the exile. And so Jesus, traveling through Samaria, stops at a well in Samaria and actually engages conversation with a Samaritan woman, not something a proper Jewish man should do in that day of age. And as they're conversing, the woman poses some theological questions to Jesus. It's an important question she poses. She says, now, we Samaritans say that we should worship God here in the mountain of Gerizim. You Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem at the temple. Which is it? Pretty important question, whether you're Jew or Samaritan. The question of where God's presence is, where His Spirit is, is a fundamental question if you want to worship. Because the only place worship happens is where God is, the presence of God. Jesus knew the proper Jewish answer. All Jews knew the proper answer. The proper answer is you worship in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where the temple is. And the temple is where the Holy of Holies is. And the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the Ark looks something like this. This is a reproduction of the Ark of the Covenant as described by God to Moses of how to make that most holy object in all of Jewish religious history. Not wholly because it's inlaid inside and out with gold, but wholly because of what it contains. It contained the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, which, if we put them in common parlance, were simply the marriage vows of Israel to God when they made covenant with God at Sinai. This was where the marriage was kept. And that's why God's presence was always viewed in Israel as hovering just around the angelic figures whose wings spread over the Ark of the Covenant. That's where every Jew knew God's presence was. And the Ark was in the temple, and so you had to go to the temple to worship. But Jesus gave her a surprising response that morning. He didn't say, well, of course, it's in Jerusalem because the Ark of the Covenant's there. He said, a day is now coming, and soon, in fact, even now is, dear woman, when neither in the mountain of Gerizim nor in Jerusalem will you worship God, but, and then he quoted the verse we just read, but God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus was bringing a message that day that was just beginning to unfold. He was reaching back to a long, sometimes forgotten promise that was buried in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that said, One day will come when God will take His Spirit and no longer will it be contained in a box. It's going to be implanted in the hearts of every believer of God. Everyone who joins themselves to Messiah is going to have the Spirit implanted in them. And Jesus said, that day is now here. You don't go somewhere to worship. Rather, the Spirit has come to you if you are a believer and that makes all the difference in the world because that means you become the new Ark of the Covenant. You become the new temple. Now, there's only one temple. But the temple is made, as Peter says in 1 Peter, of many living stones. We, the people of God, everyone who has within them housed the Spirit of God, is part of the temple of the living God. And so now we don't go to the temple. We are the temple. Amen? How many were here a few weeks ago when Ephraim Smith talked about walking, talking temples? Okay. We're simply reiterating a message that Ephraim brought to us that we need to be reminded about again and again. We come together on Sundays, that's true, to this gracious building that God's given us. Praise God. But this building is not the temple. If we ever think it is, we've gone backwards. We've left the New Covenant and got back to an Old Covenant where God's Spirit is somehow trapped within a building. Oh, it's trapped within a building, but the building is now living. Living stones. There's never a moment when we, the temple, aren't to be about worship. Which suggests that Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark that movie in which we saw the Nazis searching for the last Ark of the Covenant may be a good movie, maybe a clever plot, maybe amazing special effects, but it's really bad theology. You may remember that last scene in which the Ark is opened and it's uh, the meltdown of the Nazis, right? God's Spirit is unleashed. Here's the truth. If that is ever discovered again in history and they open it, it's just going to be a box. Because the Spirit has gone from the Ark of the Covenant and now resides in all of its power in the people of God. Amen? And you and I. Now, if that's true, two things follow. So I'd like to maybe just take... We've come so far to where Ephraim left us a few weeks ago. I want to continue the journey. Two things that logically follow, if that is true, if we are the temple of God. First, If that is true, if the Holy Spirit has all of me, all of you, all of the time, some amazing things, follow from that. First, I am the temple, all of me, every single aspect of me. There's not a fiber in my being, a part of my mind, an element of my emotions. A corner of my will that is not part of the temple, the worship center of God. I am a living, breathing, walking, talking worship center. That's my calling. That's your calling. That's our calling as people of God. Now, if that's true, I have a word of good news to those who struggle with worship. This is the word that came to me. This is the way God helped me reframe this struggle. When you get down to it, isn't the struggle most often a struggle about a lack of warmness of heart, a lack of emotion, a lack of feeling God's presence when you suspect you should be feeling it now more than ever. I have a a close friend. I alluded to to her a minute ago, but but we've talked many times about this, and she's told me the toughest part of her week sometimes is coming in to a church service and going through the praise and the worship and never feeling a thing. Ever, She told me she can't remember one Sunday when she's really felt the presence of God. Now, I think there's, there's, there's things we can say beyond what I'm going to say now to speak to that condition. But here is one thing. If all of me is the worship center of God, that means that if my emotions aren't kicking in, if they aren't responding perhaps to the, to the, to the drawing of the music and the leading of the worship leaders, I still have three aspects of me that can be worshiping God with everything. Jesus said one day when the Pharisees questioned him about what is the greatest commandment, his response was this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now if we were going to put that in modern terms, it might be something like this. Love God with all your will, all your mind, all your emotions, and all your body, your physical strength. The good news is this, if I come into a worship service on any given Sunday and my emotions aren't kicking, I don't feel the presence of God, I've still got three dimensions to my being that can worship God with everything that has within them. I can use my body. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Brethren, brothers, sisters, I urge you, by the mercies and power of God, To present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is the way you spiritually worship. Jesus talks about worshiping the Spirit. Paul tells us, here's a dimension. Use your bodies. You may not feel it. That's okay. Some person next to you may have their hands raised because they are so caught up with the presence of God. and They're expressing the sense of that that intimate feeling. But you having control over your body, making it part of the worship experience can do as much with your body to worship as anyone who's in rapture. The interesting thing about the words worship in the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, the words in Greek and Hebrew refer to the act of bowing down, using the body in worship. In fact, check it out sometime. Open your concordance. Look at some of the passages on worship. You'll be amazed at the number of times it says, and they worshiped God and bowed down. Use of the body engages, sometimes comes before, the engagement of the emotions. Not just bowing down. So many different ways the body is talked about in Scripture of being used in worship. Sometimes it is kneeling before the Lord. Sometimes it is face down, prone before our God. Sometimes it's standing. We'll sing a song later. I stand to worship. And then I fall at, my, at, at your feet. Sometimes the voice is raised, other times it's hushed. Sometimes you can't say a thing with your body because the majesty of God and the humility of who we are and the awesomeness of His love just shuts us up. Sometimes hands are lifted, sometimes hands are clapping. Sometimes feet are still, sometimes, yeah, we say feet start dancing. I won't demonstrate that. All of us can be engaged in worship. The mind, huge part. Where is my mind when I come in? My emotions may not be there. Frankly, I think the emotions may be the toughest part to engage in worship sometimes. They're the ones most affected by the surroundings, by by the, the kids arguing on the way to church, or by last night's argument, or by what you ate for dinner. Emotions suffer sometimes, but the mind can be engaged. We can focus on the words of the truth that are coming through the, the, the Scripture-inspired text on the screen. We can be inspired as we focus on who God is and who we are in relationship to Him. Our bodies, our minds, and finally, I think most importantly, our will. Even if the body is fatigued, even if the mind is weary, even if the emotions have checked out, We've still got the most fundamental part of who we are to give to God and worship our will. Think of Jesus. I don't know if there was a most more profound moment of worship. Remember, worship is simply ascribing worth to someone who's worthy. Many ways to worship. I think perhaps Jesus' most profound moment of worship was in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the capillaries in His body were bursting... Luke tells us he was sweating blood because of the strain of what he knew was coming within the next few hours the crucifixion, being separated from his father. Capillaries bursting, physically drained, emotions strung out, knowing where he's headed, mind racing. And the only prayer he can utter is Father, not my will, but your will be done. In the very moment of not wanting to be separated from God, His act of worship is, but Lord, my will is not even my will. Your will be done. That's worship. That we can do with all of our heart, with all of our soul, mind, and strength. And as we do engage our will in worship, you'll be amazed at what follows. The body begins to want to engage. The mind begins to become focused. Eventually, even dry, dead emotions begin to be ignited. God shows up. The struggle of worship has answers, has ways through, ways to break through. And it begins by remembering, reminding ourselves that all of us are worship centers. And not just all of us, but all the time, all of us. Second part of this. For those who seem to be able to walk into this service and just engage God in a moment, and I know there are such people for whom that's usually the case. People I've talked to who say for Woodland Hills, when they came to Woodland Hills, the first six months were spent simply weeping at each worship service because of God's touch in their life. Praise God for those moments. Let those moments be uh, moments of refreshing, renewing, because the seasons will come where it's maybe not so easy. But in those moments, let the challenge for you be to take that experience, that in connection with God, and take it outside of the music. Outside of this place, into every corner of your lives, every moment, 24, 7, 52 weeks a year, we are living, walking, talking worship centers. And it's somehow easier, isn't it, to worship when the music is soaring and the voices are crescendoing and Norm or Greg or the other worship leaders are drawing us in than it is when the guy cuts you off on the freeway on Friday. Or your spouse, for the seventh time that day, just doesn't get it. Or your kids, for the 47th time that day, have decided to be the world's greatest irritant. And yet you're still called to be the worship center. There's the challenge. But if spirit-empowered is part of this, we're, we're there to meet the challenge. To be 24 hours a day ascribing worth to God what does it look like here's the challenge what does it look like to ascribe worth to God in those moments where nothing seems to be calling you to worship and you are nonetheless called to worship that's the challenge for the people as the temple of God Jesus goes on there's two statements in this first passage God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit. Always, with everything, all the time. And in truth. Spirit, worship as truth-empowered. Dallas Willard has made this comment in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. He says, Beware of ignorant worship. Worship that is not infused with truth. It can be dangerous, he says. I want to suggest to you that if if worship primarily is is framed for you as something about the feelings, the emotions, the the spiritual goosebumps that you get on Sunday corporate service, allow your vision to be expanded of what worship is. I think sometimes we talk about the worship and teaching time at Woodland Hills Church, and we sometimes perhaps in our minds segregate that as the, 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 the feeling time the singing and the praise, and then the, the, the meet time, the, the, the intellectual time, usually when Greg gets up and gives us a word. But I want to suggest that we fuse those two moments of the worship service and see them as both engaging the heart and the head all the time. In every worship song that we sing, truth is assailing us, is confronting us, it is liberating us if we allow it to. Some of the best theology, some of the most important theology that counts, I want to suggest to you, is done in the moment of worship. Because perhaps it is in worship that we are most honest with ourselves about who we really believe God is. Two things I want to say about truth-empowered worship. First, truth-empowered worship confronts the false images of God that we continue to harbor. Every single one of us, if we are in this planet and we are involved in a strategic warfare, have had some point in our lives at which the enemy has tried to lie to us about who God is. That's the enemy's fundamental strategy on this planet. To confuse us about who he is and who God is. To somehow paint his face over God and then put God's name on him. That's his strategy. And so in worship, I don't know of any other place that is more powerful a moment in which to sort out the truth from the lie about who God is. I can, I, Speaking personally, I can go to Bethel College and teach a theology, theology course and say all the right things about who God is. I know my theology. I know the omni-attributes. I know the goodness of God and the majesty of God. And I think I'd probably pass my own exams. But, what happens when I get down to worship? Do I see the same God I teach about? There's the question. Whenever I, I, I talk or think about this subject, uh, a story comes to me that Greg told me that happened to him not long ago. He was uh, It was a Bethel-related incident. He was teaching a particular theology class a couple of years ago and a student came to him afterwards, after class once, wanted to talk to him one-on-one and said, I want to be very honest with you. Professor Boyd, it seems to me that a lot of the passion that you have about God, that you talk about in your theology class seems pretty phony to me. Because I've been a Christian for many years and I've never really felt what you're talking about. And I can't imagine you really experienced that. I never have. So Greg asked a simple question. He said, well, tell me about the God that you're having a tough time connecting with. And she was one of his best theology students. So like me, she knew the omnis, omniscient, omnipresent, good, powerful, faithful, loving. She knew all the right answers theologically. But Greg stopped her and said, wait a minute. Don't tell me about the God that you just took the exam on. Tell me about the God that you pray to. And he said it took her about 15 minutes to really connect with what what he was trying to ask her. And when it clicked, she immediately started weeping. And she began to speak. She was very clear on who the God was she worshipped, the God she prayed to. She said, I get this picture all the time of an old man, long white beard, with a really stern look on his face, and his hand is always cocked back, just ready to come across my face next time I do something or step out of line. That's what I see every time I pray. I can't get it out of my mind. Greg's question to her If that's your picture of God, do you find it at all surprising? You don't want to hang around with this guy. This is the kind of guy you want to put your five seconds duty in and then get as far away from as you can. This is the kind of guy that gets lodged in your mind somehow by some act of the enemy to lie to you about who your God is in worship we are confronted with the truth about what we really think about God John Wesley once said Christians don't tell lies they sing them how many times have we sung words that, if we get right down to it we just don't believe and yet those words can be the moment that presence of God can be the opportunity to confront the works of the enemy in our lives, in our minds, the strongholds that have kept us from knowing and seeing and believing the true picture of God. Here's the test. Here's the only test. Second Corinthians 4.4 If your picture of God, as you look at that, as you confront the reality of who you believe God is, does not conform to the face and image and heart of Jesus Christ, you've got the wrong God. The enemy has a strategy in your life. And this, in worship, is the opportunity to tear that stronghold down and replace it with the truth. Amen? Amen. Which leads to the second way in which worship is truth-empowered because as we shed the strongholds of the enemy, the lies about who God is, about who we are, and we allow the truth to penetrate isn't it true that in every relationship where truth is spoken, intimacy happens? That's the power of truth. When I sit down with my wife or my best friend and we speak truth to each other, two things happen. One, any misunderstandings or lies or, or things that have impeded the relationship quickly fall away. Two, true intimacy begins to develop. Truth has to lead to intimacy. That's the way it works. That's the power. As we begin to hear the words of God and are responding not to our false images of God, but to the true God, we begin not only to live as the temples of God, but as the bride of Jesus Christ. We begin to experience a foretaste of the intimacy that awaits us with our eternal bridegroom in heaven. The Greek word for worship Proskuneo literally means to kiss toward. Kuneo is to kiss. Pros means toward something. In the act of worship, we are already beginning to kiss toward our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who will be forever our groom. And if there's ever a moment in worship, even in the, in the most intense moments, when you feel that ache like it's not enough, praise God. Because the truth is, it's not enough. When Jesus Christ left, He said, I go to prepare a mansion for you. Those are the words that a betrothed bridegroom would say to his spouse when he was going away for the year of betrothal in a Jewish marriage. And during that year, they would be separated. The bridegroom, the, 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 the groom preparing the, the house for the wife, the wife preparing herself for her husband, and at the year end, when they came back together and had the full-blown wedding ceremony and went and lived face-to-face forever. That was the moment of union. We are still waiting for our marriage supper. Revelation chapter 19 tells you and I why our hearts still long sometimes for something we haven't had yet. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride, His temple, His bride has made themselves ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Write these words, for these words are true. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is you and I. That is what we're waiting for. That is what our our feeble acts of worship right now are beginning to approximate. The intensity the intimacy that we will have when our bridegroom returns and takes us forever. It's okay to be unfulfilled now, because the fulfillment is coming. Amen? Finally, worship is spiritual warfare. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, we read these words, The devil took him to a high mountain, and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and said to him, All of these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This passage is the last temptation that Jesus faces in the Gospel of Matthew's account of Jesus and the enemy of God facing off in the wilderness. The last temptation. And in a sense, I believe that in this last temptation, Satan simply lays his cards on the table. He had a few tricks up his sleeve before, trying to get Jesus to use his miraculous powers for himself as opposed to others, turn these stones into bread, trying to get him to prove that he is the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. But in this last temptation, Satan just lays it on the table and says, hey, let's cut to the chase, Jesus. I know why you're here. You're here to take the kingdoms that I've stolen. That's the Messiah's job. Tell you what, I'll make it easy for you. I will give you these kingdoms. That's what you came for. One request. Just fall down and worship me. It'll take two seconds. Just worship me, and you've got everything you want. And Jesus responds with the words of the Scripture. You shall serve the Lord your God only. He alone is your worship source. In that moment, Jesus exposes the enemy's strategy that is behind every lie he'll ever tell, every deception he'll ever pull, which is simply this the enemy wants to steal what is rightfully God's. That's what the enemy is about on this planet. In worship, we confront the reality of spiritual warfare. We've talked about the point that we are full-time worship centers. That is true not only for us as Christians. It is true for every living, breathing human being. If you are a human being, you are a worship center. The question isn't whether you'll worship. The question is simply who or what you'll worship. Bob Dylan got it right, didn't he? You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody, he said. Dylan got it right. We are always, all the time, about worshiping somebody, something, somewhere. In spiritual warfare, this becomes abundantly clear because the two sides are unmasked for what they are. Now, here's a point of strategy we've got to remember. The enemy rarely comes to us and simply says, Worship me. Usually, the enemy comes indirectly because he's quite pleased with indirect worship. I'm sure he's pleased with a few Satanists that are running around. But that isn't his biggest game in town. His biggest game is to confuse himself by hiding behind things that aren't quite Satan, but they're just not God. And calling them in our lives to become the ultimate, that which is worshipped. Richard Foster wrote a book in which I think he put his finger on three of the most important indirect ways in which the enemy gets worshipped book was called money sex and power and aren't those things that although no one would call them Satan get a whole lot of worship time in this world today starts perhaps as as seeds of envy or seeds of lust or seeds of greed or seeds of arrogance and before you know it it's built entire societal structures known as materialism racism sexism any kind of form of oppression that you can imagine, all getting the worship that God rightfully owns. In worship, we understand perhaps why the struggle is there, because we are struggling against one of the more daring tactics of the enemy, which is to steal from us the worship God gives and to draw us off into something else that's easier to worship. So you can understand the struggle when it's placed in the context of spiritual warfare, but understand the opportunity. Every time we refuse to bow down to the gods of this world, behind every one of which is the face of Satan, and worship the true God, we are literally tearing down the strongholds of the enemy. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it won't just set you free, it'll set us free, and it won't just set us free, it'll set the Twin Cities free if we begin to multiply the worship that God so richly deserves beyond this congregation and into this community. Amen? Warfare is always, always all around us, and worship is one of the key ingredients to tearing down The works of the enemy Jehoshaphat knew it and Chronicles were told about Jehoshaphat's war in which he was called to defeat the enemies of God and what he did instead of picking up his swords and getting excited was simply worship God and reminding his troops that this battle is the Lord's and the Lord was proven victorious that day Woodland Hills knows it we've had moments and times Of the presence of God liberating us as a body and so as we leave today leaving this time of corporate praise and worship let's remember worship is never just singing songs it can seem that way sometimes but as we engage all of us all the time in the fundamental activity for which we were born For what we are designed for we'll see that in every act of worship at least four very important things are going on we are speaking language of love to our Lord we are kissing towards our bridegroom in every act of worship whether you feel it or not your will can engage that act of love to the one who deserves to be loved and who loves us so intimately back we are speaking truth to ourselves tearing down the strongholds the lies the false images of God, and replacing them with the truth. We are speaking to the enemy and letting him know that this place is not a place that's going to be his playground, but rather is going to be taken back and used as a launching pad to change this city for Jesus Christ. And we are already foreshadowing what Jesus promised us in Matthew 5 when he said that as we go out from this place like this into every corner of our world, and each one of us as a worship center worships all the time with all of us, we will impact our world. And we will have people glorifying our Father in heaven for what He sees being done in us. Amen? That is our calling. Let's worship.